to chapter 3 last week, we began to look at the return of Jesus Christ, that there is a promise that we have that Jesus will return. And how do we have this promise? Well, the Word of God tells us of the promise. So we have the Old Testament prophets is what Peter says. You can look back at the prophets, and you can see that they prophesied that Jesus Christ would return. You can look at Jesus' own teaching. You can see that Jesus Christ spoke of his, of his return. And you can look at the apostles, and you can see that the apostles and their teaching also spoke of a second coming. But yet there were some who scoffed at the idea. They, they decided to scoff at the idea that Jesus would return. And what they did is they began to renounce the creation story. And they would begin to say, well, that didn't really happen. And even in today, we see those that renounce the creation story. And so what they would say is that God's word isn't really that powerful, that he would speak it into existence. And then they would go on to say, well, he probably didn't destroy the world either. And so they denounced the story of the flood. Both of those instances is that God's word is powerful enough that with a simple word, he can create and he can bring destruction. And one day he will return again with a word. So why hasn't he returned? Well, today we see not the promise of his return as much, but the patience of his return. Patience. It's a virtue, right? It's something that we all kind of struggle with from time to time. If you've ever had kids in a car for a long drive somewhere, you know what patience is. Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Now, when I was a, a senior in high school, I'll say this to just try to keep you guys awake off the, off the bat here. When I was a senior in high school, I had the opportunity to go visit my dad. My dad lives in Oklahoma City, and so that's about 14-plus hours from now, from here. And so I was thinking, you know what, I'm old enough. I can drive, and, and my you know, parents said no. And so they said, you can go on this trip with your grandfather. Okay, listen, there's no iPhones. There's no tablets. There's no, there, there's a, I have a Discman. You don't even know what a Discman is with headphones. That's all I have, right? I have just a load of CDs. And I'm riding in a Cadillac with an old man for 14 plus hours. That'll teach you patience right there. That'll teach you patience. The Lord is patient with us. And we're going to see right here in these verses that he is patient for a purpose. And the purpose is that we would come to repentance. So if you have your Bibles, let's read. Starting in verse 8. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, like a thief and the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. And the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for the, and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which right, righteousness dwells. Verse 14. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things 
in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and the unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen? Amen. The patience of his coming is on account of his being. It's who he is. On account of his being, there in verse 8, chapter 3. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. Now, this is not some you know, biblical algorithm. This is not something that you can just uh, say this is a numerical code to figure out other parts of the Bible. This is just simply saying the Lord is outside of time. He's totally outside of time as we uh, perceive it. So this, this is account of his being. The Lord's patience is on account of his eternality. He's eternal. The Lord's clock does not operate the same as ours. He didn't have to fall back this morning. He didn't need an extra hour of sleep, although it was pretty nice, right? The Lord is not dependent upon the rotation of the earth or its orbit around the sun in order to make his decisions. God is eternal now. The past, the present, and the future are. It's his being. He knows the end from the beginning, and all of it is present with him right now, including the coming of all things. Now, for our finite minds, this is so difficult for us to wrap our minds around, the fact that he is eternal. Now, I did some math, and I did it about four days ago, and so I'm pretty sure these numbers are wrong because I'm not good at math. But right now, I've lived 16,539 days. You're like, you're pretty young. I know. Thank you. I've lived 396,696 hours. I've lived 23,801,760 minutes, roughly, give or take. I didn't do seconds. I can't get a single one of those back. I'm stuck. I can't hop in a DeLorean. You know, I can't go back. Uh, this, is, this is life. This is it. Every moment is fleeting. Every moment is passing by, and yet there is a God who sits on a throne, and all of it is laid out before him. Does that not amaze you that there is a God who sits on a throne who sovereignly is working out all things right now according to his purpose and his plan, and yet our minutes are just ticking by? Oh, Lord, Psalm 39, 4 through 5. Make me know my end and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you have made my days as few as headbreadths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Our finiteness should allow us to be captured in worship this morning because Jesus is eternal. We need to acknowledge how short of a time we have on this on this planet and how patient he is with us. James 4, 13 through 14, come now, you who say today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. As Charles Hodge says, with God, there is no distinction between the present, past, and future, but all things are equally and always present to him. 
With him, duration is an eternal now. May we think about this for just a minute. Jesus is the eternal now who put on flesh, stepped into time in order to take away our sins. And we are waiting his return. The eternal God stepped into the flesh so that he could redeem us from the penalty of sin. Psalm 90, 1 through 4, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, return, O children of man, for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. Jesus, when he reveals himself, he reveals himself as the eternal now. He says in Exodus 3, 13 through 14, Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am, the I am has sent you, sent me to you. Jesus would say the same words in John 8, 58. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you before Abraham was, I am. And in Revelation chapter 1, 7 through 8, behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Right now, we are given the opportunity with the, with the moments that we have to gather together as a body of believers and to exalt Jesus Christ for what he's done on the cross and then look forward to his return. He's outside of time. He's the Alpha and the Omega. He's the Lord God Almighty. He's the one who is, the one who, who, who was, and who is to come. He is the one who now sits on the throne. He is the one who will come again. Time is but a creature in God's hand. He created it. But not so with man. With man, future is always coming. The present quickly becomes the past. We can never truly say, I am, for the moment we say that I am, it's already changed that I was. God has no beginning and he has no end. God is not controlled by time. He does not think in terms of time. He does not reckon with time, but is exalted over all time. God never says, I was. He never says, I will be. He simply says, I am. This is the God that we worship, and he has patience with us. The patience is on account of his being, and that being has a motivation. It's on account of his motivation. Look at verse 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Why has Jesus not come yet? What a great question. Because there are those who have been chosen from the foundations of the world who have yet to come to a moment of repentance. There are those that he has called, that he has chosen, that need to come to a moment of repentance. Look at Ephesians 1, 4 through 5. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself, as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, 
He has a purpose. He has a will. He is drawing those to himself, and he is waiting for us to reach a moment of repentance. John 6, 39 through 40. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. The eternal Christ has a will and has a plan, and he is working all things out so that he can raise up his beloved bride on the last day. Let me ask you, have you come to a moment of repentance? Have you come to the Lord? R.C. Sproul says we should not be complacent when we hear the command to repent. The elect will lead lives of repentance. And those who persistently refuse the command of God reveal themselves to be at enmity with God. Those who claim to know Christ but will not submit to him as Lord through repentance, faith, and obedience dangerously presume upon God's grace. We all must repent, lest our deaths or Jesus' return make it too late. What is repentance? Well, repentance is a change of mind and a change of action. That's the best definition for it. There's a change that takes place when you repent. Repentance is more than a feeling of regret, remorse, sorrow, and sadness. Certainly, all of these feelings of regret and remorse accompany repentance, but they're not the sole action of repentance. You can be sad, you can be remorseful, and you can be not repentant. Esau knew this. Hebrews 12, 15 through 17, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness spring up and cause trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. There are many who are remorseful. There are many who are tearful. There are many who are sad for the circumstances that they find themselves in, but yet they haven't come to a moment of repentance, a moment of change, a change of heart, a change of mind, and a change of life. How does this pattern take place? The pattern of repentance is this. We see that there's a preaching of God's word throughout scripture. There's a proclamation of the gospel. Look at Mark chapter 1 or Acts chapter 2 for this. Then there's a conviction of sin by those who hear the word of God. Then there's a confession of that sin and then a repentance of that sin. And this is followed by a life of bearing fruit and repentance by a process of progressive obedience. Baptism being the first step of obedience. I said it last week, I'll say it again this week. If you've not been baptized, if you've not submitted your life to the Lord Jesus Christ and, and said, I want to follow him even in believer's baptism where I show that I am no longer I'm no longer the old person, but I am changed. I have repented and I am new. I have newness of life. Then I plead with you to come talk with me today. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, then let that be the first act of outward obedience. In repentance, we go before God and we confess our sins. Asking not only for forgiveness and a pardon, but also for a change to take place that he would do something in our hearts and our minds that we are incapable of doing. He would change our minds about sin. 
Charles Spurgeon said it this way, an unchanged life is a mark of an unchanged heart. And an unchanged heart is a sign of an unregenerate heart. If there's simply been no change, even though you prayed a prayer, have you really repented? Do you remember a specific time where you bowed your heart, you bowed your knee, and you bowed your life to Jesus Christ, the eternal God who sits over all things, controls all things? Has there been a moment in your life where you repented of the sin that separates you from him? If not, I plead with you today that you would humble yourself before him and repent before he returns. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Simply, Peter is now moving into the description of a complete recreation that will take place. Just as in Genesis 1 and 2, he spoke and his word created a world that was without sin. In the last two chapters of Revelation, he will speak again, he will return, and he will recreate a new heavens and a new earth where there is no sin, where there is no enemy. Verse 11, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Waiting for the hastening and coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Revelation speaks to this in 21 and 22. Let me read 22, 12 through, 12 through 14. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gate. A total new heavens and a new earth, a new creation where righteousness dwells. Blessed are those who wash their robes who have been washed by the blood of the Lamb because they are welcomed back into the presence of eternal God. The only way for us to be ready for Christ's return is to be people of repentance. Our preparation for his return is on account of our salvation. It's a preparation on account of our hope. Verse 14, therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. Be diligent. You ever see these... Uh, doomsday preppers I, I'm sure there's there's more doomsday preppers lately than than usual uh, but people are getting ready for the end of the world they're stockpiling all kinds of MREs and all kinds of things and that, if that's you I'm not making fun of you because I'll come to your house whenever it happens because um, I haven't done that but in fact it's a multi-billion dollar business experts estimate that as many as 3.7 million Americans are classified as doomsday preppers that's a, that's a pretty big chunk of the population. So I'll just go knock on doors until I find one of you. Be diligent. It really gives this notice of make it your business now in preparation. 
for the day. It really is the what must we do knowing that the day is coming. Well, we need to be diligent now. We need to be prepared for his return. We need to be waiting for the blessed hope. As Paul would say in Titus chapter 2, 11 through 14, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. We're to be a people who are ready, a people who are waiting. Jesus would say this to his, his disciples, blessed is the servant whom the master will find so doing when he comes. One who is ready, verse 15, and count the patience of our Lord, and, Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things that in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. I love, number one, that Peter says Paul's hard to understand. You know, if, if Peter found him hard to understand, then I, I feel like I'm in, I'm in a good boat there, that I find him hard to understand. But he says Paul even wrote about these things. The inspired word of God wrote about these things. In 1 Thessalonians 5.23, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Be ready. Be prepared. Be diligent. So how are we to do this? Well, let's close with an application of 2 Peter. Our preparedness is on account of our humility. 17 and 18. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. Number one, take care. Watch out for false teachers. Watch out for a world that wants to pull you away from Jesus Christ. Watch out for a world that wants to take your eyes off of him and you, your knowledge of his return and put it on the things of this world. Beware. Take care. Verse 18, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Take care and grow in grace and knowledge. This is the process of guarding your heart and decisions so you can continually deepen your relationship with God through Jesus Christ. It's a daily seeking to understand and appreciate the unmerited favor and forgiveness he offers that will transform your life and character. Take care. Grow in grace and knowledge. As Martin Lloyd-Jones says, personally, I can be certain I am growing in grace if I have an increasing sense of my own sinfulness and my own unworthiness. If I see more and more the blackness of my own heart. Humble ourselves before him. What is the pattern of growing in grace and humility? Well, it's growing in grace, and it's only by being humble before the Lord. 1 Peter 5, 5. God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Growing in grace, be by humbly acknowledging your weaknesses and relying on God's grace to overcome them. 
2 Corinthians 12, 9. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. We go before him, acknowledging the weakest areas that are in our life, humbly submitting them to him and recognizing that we are in utter dependence upon Christ. See, growing in the knowledge of Jesus Christ by humbly approaching Christ in prayer, knowing that his grace is available to us when we need it, and that he is able to sympathize with us. Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. D, growing in grace, humbly seeks to live a life that reflects God's transformative power by avoiding sin and pursuing godliness over gratification. Romans 6, 1 and 2. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Humble ourselves before the Lord. I'm going to close with a Charles Spurgeon quote. If you, dear friend, would be truly humble, you must look at your Savior. For then you will say, Alas, and did my Savior bleed? And did my sovereign die? Would he devote that sacred head for such a worm as I? You will never feel yourself such a worm as when, you, as when by faith you see your Savior dying for you. You will never know your own nothingness so well as when you see your Savior's greatness. When you grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, you will be sure to grow in humility. He will come again. And he is demonstrating his eternal patience with us right now. If you don't know him, I beg of you. Find a moment where you can bow your head, bow your heart, and bow your knee, and bow your life in repentance to him. Because salvation, salvation is so close. Let's pray. Gracious Father.